Okay. Um, I hope you had an opportunity to, to, to write down those very, very important dates. Okay, they're on the website. What now? Okay, wow. Wow, that, wow that's, that's really impressive. Because they've only just gone up there. So, uh, Yeah, yeah. Obviously, I just speak words and something else happens. Um, okay, so this morning we're bringing to a close out. We've been doing a series over the last uh, few months called the the 360-degree gospel. And what we've basically been talking about is how the gospel impacts, affects every area of your life. It doesn't just save you. It's the gospel that actually sanctifies you. If, if you think to yourself that becoming a Christian was, that there was a moment in time when you prayed to Jesus and you repented of your sin and you asked him into your heart and you, and you accepted him, and that was the last time you prayed to Jesus or repented or, or sort of recognised him as Lord of your life, that's not being Christian. Uh, being Christian, the reality of being Christian is you do that type of stuff regularly. Yeah. So repentance is something that you do regularly because you're always being reminded by God or shown by God of areas of your life that you need to change. You say, oh God, I, I, I didn't realise I'd done that. So this week I was reminded... Um, and some of you would go, yeah, no, this is true. I mean, I was reminded of how opinionated I can be. Yeah, I was in a context, and I came where I think, oh, my goodness me, I'm, I'm still like that. Yeah? And, and it brings to that place, place of, of wanting to repent. And by repentance, I don't simply mean uh, I say, oh, sorry, God, for that. Uh, but repentance is sort of changing the way you think, changing your thinking, changing your mind. And so we wanted to... Um, I suppose explain or we wanted to explore or provoke people to, uh, to understand that the gospel has an impact on every area of life. And, and we looked at various things over the course of the last few weeks. We looked at the gospel and suffering and how the ultimate, um, how, how God seems to ordain suffering, yet actually at the cross he dealt with suffering. We looked at the gospel and uh, culture and uh, we talked there, I talked there about about sort of uh, the importance of having sort of Christian thought patterns and not cultural ones. And one of the ways that we can build uh, cross-culturally is through what I call table fellowship. Now, had Donovan been here, and I don't think he is, he was, he was going to bring a, just a brilliant testimony on table fellowship. And if he turns up, then I'll get him to do it at whatever point it is, is relevant. So we just looked at how the gospel impacts every area of life. And it was, it was to show people that, that the gospel has power, not just when I'm saved, but as a Christian. It's the gospel that has the power that changes me. And so uh, we, we wanted people to uh, understand that. Suffering, we looked at diversity, we looked at, we looked at the gospel and the poor and how God calls us to, to love the poor. And as we love the poor, we will serve the poor. And that was something that um, God spoke to us about. Um, Today, we're going to look at the gospel and the power of God. And I'm going to read just a few verses from uh, Romans uh, chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. It should come up. It's going to come up in two different versions of the Bible. This is the NIV version. It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. What the Amplified Version of the Bible says is this. 
For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, good news, of Christ. For it is God's power working unto salvation for deliverance from eternal death to everyone who believes with a personal trust and a confident surrender and firm reliance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you for just being with us in our worship. We thank you that, that, that worship is more than just singing songs. Worship is an expression of our hearts towards you. It's, worship is an obedient act. Worship is a place where we come when, when you, we want your comfort, when we need your help. Worship is a place we come when we need change in our lives. We come to you, the living God, the one who is worthy of all our worship. We thank you for that. And we thank you for your word, Lord, because it's your word, the truth that we read about that sets us free, sets us apart. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that you would speak to us by your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. I've been, one of the things that I talk about um, a little bit is the fact that the world, as I see it, is moving away from the church. So whereas this nation was a, a, is, is a Christian nation, born on Christian principles, in these days, people are moving away from that. They're not, they're not acknowledging that as much now. They're, they're, they're acknowledging other things, and it's almost like we're running away from God. Um, there is also a bit, which is a little bit sad, where the church is is running behind the world very quickly, following the world, running away from God. And so that um, leaves us in a sort of a, a, a tricky place to be. But because the world is in such a state, I've discovered this. It's easier to preach the gospel today than probably at any other time in my life. It's easier to let people know about Jesus than probably at any other time in my life. And it's for two reasons. The first is this. Christians have always believed the world was in a mess. Yeah? So we think sin makes the world a messy place. Um, selfishness makes the world a messy place. One of the reasons communism in the end was never going to work was because people are selfish. Yeah? You've got a philosophy which sounds idealistic, but actually at the heart of every philosophy are individuals, and individuals are selfish. So in communism, you would get 1% of the people that had everything, and you'd have 99% of the people who would have nothing. It was never going to work. Somebody needed to sit down and go, no, 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 this won't work. Because in the end, we're all selfish, and we're all going to go for our own thing. So the world is in a mess, and we've always believed that. Not everyone has believed that, though. People believe that individuals are messed up, but they don't necessarily believe that the world is a mess. But now... That's changing. That's changing. People are thinking differently. The world is in a mess, and I would say people are beginning to realise it. People know it for themselves. Whereas before we would accept individuals were messed up, but, but we always believed that what we did, our institutions, our culture, all those things were essentially good things. They weren't bad things, they were, they were good things. But recently that view has begun to change. I don't know how many of you, just let me give you some, some examples. I don't know how many of you are into sport. I love sport. Well, I love watching sport. Um, it's good. It's good. You can watch lots of sport and, uh, and, and feel like you've been involved, but actually you've not, you've not sweated a thing. So um, I, I love sport, 
Um, but recently, there, was, there have been some really big cases that have explained to us not just that individuals are not great, but our systems aren't great. If, if you think about the, um, the recent case of um, uh, Lance Armstrong, the, the cyclist, and, and really the drug cheat, and, and that would be okay. We could have accepted Lance Armstrong was a drug cheat, and oh, naughty man, naughty man. But actually, what you discover was the whole system he was involved in led him to that and allowed that to happen. It wasn't just that he was out there on his own. There were loads of them who were doing it. In fact, at one point I heard that over a number of years, 21 of 22 podium finishes in the Tour de France over a period of time were all suspected of being involved in drugs. 21 out of 22. It was systematic. It wasn't just an individual who was naughty and wrong. It was a systematic thing that was going on. If you think about uh, football and, and, say, and racism in football, one of the things that has disappointed people is not, is not that it exists, but, but, but part of the way people respond to it, it just doesn't seem like it matters to them. And that's what's caused people a problem. It's the institution seems to call, be part of the problem, not just the individuals. And we never used to have that. If you think about it, if you grew up, if, you know, if you're uh, maybe more than 25, 30 years old, you'll remember the view that people had of the bank manager and banking. And, and you always thought that those people were upright, upstanding, good members of society. And then we've had situations that have made us think, oh, I didn't know that they were abusing things all the time. They were taking money. They were taking risks with other people's money. I didn't know that was going on. Yeah, suddenly you realise the institution itself is a little... Uh, corrupt, or you think about the media and, and the Leveson inquiry, and you think of all that's come out of that. And I really feel for that man who was, I can't even remember his name, who was accused of murdering that student girl, and, and his face was in the paper, and he had messy hair, and he looked like he must have done it. Yeah, he looked bad. And then we discover, oh no, it was the neighbor, and suddenly there's this guy, his life's been ruined. Yeah, because the media have just sort of put the spotlight on him, him and acted like judge and jury. We would have thought the media told the truth. But we're discovering, oh, no, they don't always tell the truth. I thought that they were good people. I thought they were investigating for the truth, not just investigating to sell papers. And so we're discovering that not just individuals aren't great, but our systems aren't great. You think there are loads of them. I could go on and on. I'll just depress you, and I don't, want to, I don't want to do that. I could go on and on in terms of our society. I mean, one of them that hits us personally would be, um, you know, the UK, I think, is the fifth richest country in the world, and we struggle as a nation to accept the need for food banks. We're struggling with it. Has it really come to this? So what people say to us when we're doing food banks, this is what they often say. They say, oh, you know, it's good that you're doing this, but it's a real shame that you have to. It's a real shame that you have to. Has it really come to this? And actually, it has, it has come to this. It has come to a place where some people, yesterday we had one family turn up, two adults, five children, they can't afford to feed themselves. I don't know whether you're aware, there's a whole group of people that live among us who have no recourse to public funds. So they literally have no money. They can't, they, can't, they can't go to the bank. They can't go and claim unemployment benefit. They have no recourse to public funds. And so it, it has come to a place where, where some of our institutions have led to people being let down. You think of the BBC, Jimmy Savile, all those types of things. We're being let down by, by institutions that we believed were good. 
I'm not saying they're all not good, but we've been let down by things that we thought were good. It's not just an individual. You might put a name out there, but then you're discovering, oh, no, it's, there's more, it's more than just that person. There's all these things. In fact, it was some people even knew what was going on, and they didn't seem to say anything. So it's not just an individual that, and we've always liked to look for an individual to blame, but actually these days we're recognising, oh, no, it's systematic. There are systems that are wrong. And so people are realising the world's a mess. Yeah? Now the Christian goes, do you know what we've been saying that? The world's a mess. Yeah? And people are now recognising that. The world is a mess. People wouldn't admit it, but they are beginning to admit that. So how have people responded to a situation where they've walked away from church, they've walked away from God, they've walked away from religion, but they've, they've turned to the world and they find, oh my goodness, the world's a mess. What are we going to do? This is what some people do. They create their own hope. They create their own saviours. Yeah? You get groups of people that insulate themselves from the reality around them and they just exist. Yeah? More than ever before, people worship themselves. Yeah? They, they worship each other, they worship themselves. You, you look at celebrities, you look at some of the songs that people sing. It's, it's the worship of self. Yeah? I mean, I mean, some, some sort of, I think it was either Beyonce or Rihanna, had a song called I Am. It's the worship of self. So people have moved to this place where they worship self and they, and they, they contain themselves in a world which insulates them from the mess. Let me give you an example. The hip-hop religion. Yeah? Now, I'm not really, I'm not particularly into hip-hop. Um, I mean, Daisy, my daughter, and she's not in here, so it's fine, She's been attending some hip-hop dance classes, yeah, uh, at half-term and school holidays in High Wycombe. Um, and, and it's really interesting. So, so I go up there, you know, I'm driving up to High Wycombe, I'm dropping her off, I'm driving back. And I've been amazed because, because the hip-hop community, it, it is literally like a community. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a church. It's like, it's like a group, yeah. Um, and, and they talk religious talk. Yeah? I mean, they're not praising Jesus, but they talk religious talk. They have a message to be proclaimed. Hip-hop is the answer to so many of life's problems. Let me read you just a couple of things that the hip-hop uh, guy, I've, uh, the emails I've had from him. He says, I recently came across a true story about a street dance pioneer that I think you would find inter of interest. It shows how even if you start at the back in life, with hard and determination, you can always work your way to the front. The story is about a street dance pioneer. It's one you probably haven't heard before. I always like true stories. I hope you like this one as much as I did. Have a great weekend. Keep on dancing. Yeah? Then here's another one. Well, you know whenever we can, we move heaven and earth to get you guys exposure with pioneers. Well, we have just managed to secure an awesome hip-hop dance pioneer, Link, from Elite Force. I don't know Elite Force. I don't know Link, but he's awesome, apparently. If you don't know Link, he is an incredible dancer and has been spreading the word of real hip-hop dance around the world. Now, when I first heard him talk like this, I was thinking, are you joking? 
spreading the word of real hip-hop. What, what do you mean? And then I watch sometimes, and they don't just do moves. He goes into the philosophy of hip-hop, and he's saying, this move means that, and every move has a name. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. You've built a community around which you have insulated yourself, and you found this to be the answer, hip-hop. Football's another religion, and Bill Shankly said these words. Oh, no, I can't even read it. I can't remember it. This is Bill Shankly. He was a, he was a Liverpool, one of the most successful football managers uh, of, of the last 30 years. He said this. Some people believe football is a matter of life and death. I'm very disappointed with that attitude. I can assure you it's much, much more than that. Yeah? So that's what Bill Shankly said about football. And uh, when I went with um, uh, Gavin Peacock a few weeks ago to, to Charlton, it was like I went to a church of 20,000 people. We were worshipping, we were praising, we were meeting and hugging and, and being together. We were supporting local charities. This is what it was like. It was a religion. People already know that they need hope in the world. They know they need hope. They don't need you to tell them. They know they need hope. They're already looking for a saviour. The more charismatic, the better. But they're looking for a saviour. It's themselves, it's their friends, it's their thing. Yeah? And they'll, they'll sacrifice to that. Yeah? They'll give time, energy, money to their thing. People speak almost mission-like about everything, including hip-hop, including football. You think about the Olympics and the ability it had to unite people for a moment in the summer. It becomes almost missional. But we ask this question, is sport really the answer to life's problems? Is it really the answer to life's problems? As I said, life can be a little bit uncomfortable for the Christian because the world has begun to promote actively uh, ways of life and values which are contrary to what we believe. And it's active, so it becomes a little bit uncomfortable for us. Yet at the same time, preaching the gospel becomes easier because people are looking for hope. They are looking for answers. And showing people their need for hope, their need for a saviour, is the easy bit. Yeah, People aren't denying that. They're not denying need. Showing them that their need is met in Jesus is a different story. Showing them that they need something, easy. Showing them that their answer is Jesus is much more difficult. One of the reasons it's difficult is because Jesus and Christianity is like the boyfriend that you've already jilted. You've already decided that doesn't work. You're looking for another boyfriend. You're looking for someone else. Oh, that didn't work. I'm going to go with someone else. Not realising that you go out of the frying pan, if you, as it were, into the fire. You don't realise that's what you're doing. But that's what the world's done. It's rejected Jesus and is looking for something else, not realising, oh, no, no, you've actually rejected. It's not that there's a new answer. You've rejected the answer. It's not that you haven't found it yet. You've rejected it. And that's how we live. Yet I stand here today more convinced than ever before that the gospel is the answer. The truth for most of those many religions as I'll call them, is that you step away from that world 
you look a tiny, tiny bit broader, it no longer is the answer to anything. Hip-hop is great if you're part of the group, yeah? And if you just focus on the group. But do you know what? Hip-hop doesn't save marriages. Hip-hop doesn't help you keep your job. Hip-hop doesn't stop you feeling worthless inside. It might mean for a while you feel worth something outside, but it doesn't stop that. Hip-hop doesn't do those things. I'm not, I know some of you are thinking, I'm going to get into hip-hop. No, 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 don't go into hip-hop. Yeah, because it doesn't do those things. Yeah, all those things it doesn't do. The cracks begin to appear in these mini religions very, very quickly. Doesn't take much outside of it for you to realize, oh, do you know what? That doesn't actually, it doesn't actually solve anything. It's a nice hobby, but it doesn't actually solve any problem that I've got. So why is the gospel good news to those who believe it? I would say this. The gospel is the most credible solution for the problems of the world. You see, if you, if you want to believe in atheism, the problem with atheism is it has no answer for suffering. If you really look at atheism, under atheism, suffering becomes a pointless thing. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't add up. There's no answer to suffering under atheism. The gospel is the only thing that works for the individual, for the community, and globally. It's not a new answer. It's been rejected. So let me just give you some reasons why I say it's the most credible answer. First of all is this. The gospel answers the problems of suffering on every level. And we looked at that a few weeks ago. No one else or something else does that. We saw in the story of Job how God actually seemed to ordain the suffering of one of his own children for his own glory, but actually provided Job not only with help and support in the suffering, but a way out of the suffering. One of the responses to Job in suffering was worship. It was his first response. And we sang that song where it goes, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That's exactly what Job said. He lost everything. He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Now, if you do not have God to go to in that moment, I don't know where you go. If you don't have one to come to. You also see in the story of Job how ruthless Satan is. Satan's not messing about. It's not like, oh no, there's no such thing as Satan. Satan was not messing about. He destroyed everything Job owned, lost the bet with God. Then when God said, hey, look, Job, Job didn't give in. Satan goes, skin for skin. Like, I don't really care. Skin for skin. The only reason he's still there is because you haven't touched his life. You touch his life and he'll stop worshipping you. So he's allowed again to go at Job. And again, Job doesn't give in. Why? Because he's got something much bigger to hold on to. He's not holding on to his ability to dance or to play football or to earn money because he had lost all of that stuff. He's holding on to the one thing that mattered, and that is God. He's holding on to God. And so Satan operates with merciless, not even a hint of compassion or thought. Don't think that you're not in cahoots with Satan. He's the guy who's going to double cross and double cross. So when you go that way, just remember, he's not like he's thinking, oh, great, you're on my side. No, he will double cross and double cross. That's what happens. 
So suffering comes to us and, and we see in Job how God deals with it. But even more than that, at the cross, Jesus not only suffered himself, but he took our suffering. He took our pain. Yeah? No one else has taken your pain. Yeah, I love Pauline with all my heart, but you know what? I can't do pain. I mean, I empathised as much as I could when she was having those children. I did. I was there. I was, I was holding hands. At times I was eating rice and peas, but I was holding <laughs> hands. Yeah, I was really doing my best to empathise. I was going, my love, it hurts me. Yeah, but truth, I can't do pain. I can't do pain. No one else suffers for you like God suffers for you. Secondly, the gospel answers the problems of racism and ethnic tension, which have led to so many wars, so many broken relationships, so much tension between groups of people. Yeah? One of the downsides of communism ending was ethnic groups emerged from everywhere. And suddenly you had ethnic cleansing and ethnic tensions. Do you know what? The gospel is the only thing that answers that. In Christ, there's no other answer for it. That's why it still exists. That's why in the 21st century, although people live together, it's still there. Because there is no answer. You can't legislate that out. You can't change the law and suddenly people go, oh, okay, I won't, I won't have those thoughts anymore. It doesn't work. The gospel is the only answer to the problem of ra uh, racism. John Piper says, racism is a blood of Jesus issue. Yeah? It's not a sociological one. It's not to do with demographics. Oh, look, you know, there are more people around. Nothing to do with economics. It's a blood of Jesus issue. If you're going to deal with it, you need to come to Jesus. Why? Because racism is sin. Just like anger is sin. Envy is sin. You don't deal with them by law. Yeah, there's not a law to say you can't be envious. There's a law that says that you can't take your, your neighbor's stuff, but we still do that. The gospel answers the problem of community and cultural fragmentation. We live in a place where community and culture, they're fragmented. It's because we're all from different cultures, from different backgrounds. We hold on to certain values really dearly. Other people don't seem to, oh, they don't seem to do it like that. Oh, what are they doing over there? How does that work in that? That's how we operate. And so we withdraw from relationship because we're unsure about certain things in terms of community, in terms of culture. Or we create our community, the hip-hop religion, the hip-hop church. We create a community, we, we get some values, we say, we agree, we agree, yeah. And as long as I'm in this, I'm fine. But do you know what? When I'm part of hip-hop religion, I don't think about the poor. Why on earth would I think about the poor? I've, I've found what I want. i found what I need. I'm insulating myself from that. But the gospel brings people together, yeah? There is a new culture that emerges there's a kingdom called the kingdom of God. And Jesus is, is the head of that kingdom. But what does he do? He comes to serve. Yeah. So we follow his example. What do we do if we follow Jesus' example? We serve one another. We submit to one another. We love one another. Those are kingdom culture values. They're not every culture values. The gospel answers the problem of worthlessness. How many of us can at times feel worthless. You feel like you haven't added up to much. You feel like that you've disappointed not only in other people's expectations, but your own expectations of your life. You think, oh, I, I just thought I would have done this and that, and I'm doing this. How does that work out? 
I thought I was bigger than this. I thought I was better than this. You feel worthless. Growing number of suicides. Tragically, growing number of suicides among the young who don't even realize they can get beyond that. They don't even realize it. So they just feel worthless. <clears throat> 15, 16-year-olds feeling worthless. Self-harm. Even the fact that some people abuse other people is a sign that they feel worthless. Yeah? It drives us. It makes us do things that we wouldn't otherwise do. And yet in the Bible, we read about a God who's full of grace and who's full of truth. A God who accepts you for who you are, but knows who you are. The world accepts what you present. God accepts who you are. And it is still one of my favorite verses in the Bible where it says, whilst I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Whilst I was running from him, he died. So the gospel answers the problems of worthlessness. The gospel answers the problems of what you might call a fatherless generation. And I don't use that term glibly. I hear people use that term. But I genuinely mean a generation that haven't had fathering, that haven't been parented, that say what they like and do what they like and no one tells them different. And in fact, all we do is we encourage it because we think a good thing these days is to, oh, let's get youth leading in this, that, and the other. Sometimes that's a good thing, but sometimes young people just need to grow up. And they need parents, yeah? And they need older brothers and sisters and they need mentors. And one of the reasons boys get drawn into gangs is because they don't have that. One of the reasons that girls get pregnant is because they don't have that. So we live in a generation that is fatherless. And yet, what does the Father in heaven do? He sends his Son. How does he present himself? He presents himself as a father with a son who comes to earth to win people like you and me so that we can be fathered. What does a father do? A father provides, a father protects, and a father is present. That's what God does. And do you know what I think in these days where we, there's such a generation without fathering, the church needs to step into that. The church needs to become like father, like parent, rather than, as we sometimes do, we're going, oh my goodness me, I can't work out what's going on with all these young people. No, I don't, I don't touch that. I've got young people, children, and relating is always not easy. Yeah? But God calls us and God himself is a father, and that we need to be fathers to a generation. We need to help people restore right and appropriate relationships so that girls don't only ever find attention through their bodies and so are willing to give themselves up to something that they don't really need, they don't really want. And that guys don't take advantage and abuse and move into situations that they just should not move into because no one said, do you know what, that's not the way to operate. That's not the way to act. Yeah? The world needs fathering. And the only place you're really going to get fathering is in the church. Why? Not because we're the best people, but because God is our father. He's given us the best example of fathering. Hip-hop doesn't give you that. Hip-hop can be good, but it doesn't father people. It might take their attention for a while. 
You see, nothing comes close to answering all those problems and many more apart from the gospel. Nothing. Nothing comes close. You can read philosophy books, nothing comes close. Yesterday, while I was involved in food bank and I was doing some collections and I was ferrying food back and forth, on one of my trips, uh, I, I really, it was a real privilege, I, I was joined by uh, a guy, he's 27 years old, he's a liberal Jew. Yeah, I'd never heard of a liberal Jew. I was like, oh, I was intrigued, you're a liberal Jew? What does that mean? Yeah, so I was just beginning to question him, asking questions, finding out, and I realised that there are three types of Jews, as he spoke to me. There are Orthodox Jews who don't believe Jesus was the Son of God, and they're still waiting for the Messiah, and they, and they take the Torah and the laws of God very, very sort of seriously. Then you have Messianic Jews, and they are Jews who do believe that Jesus was the Son of God, but they remain Jewish, and that Jewish identity. And then you have liberal Jews. And liberal Jews, um, you know, Orthodox Jews, Judaism is a bit too much for them, but they're not Messianic Jews. And so I just asked this guy, and I found it really sad. When, it, when I, I, said, I said, so the Old Testament, it does appear like they're waiting for something to happen. They're waiting for someone to come. Yeah? So the Orthodox Jew, in that sense, they're right. The, the, the Bible seems to suggest there is someone to come. A Messiah will come. He said to me, we don't really think about that anymore. The liberal Jew doesn't really think about the Messiah, the second coming or the coming of one. We just think about the Torah and our lives today and how we make it work. And I thought, my goodness, how sad. Because where is your hope? At least with the Orthodox Jew, they're still thinking hope. They're still thinking it. The Messianic Jew have accepted Jesus as the hope. The liberal Jew goes, well, no real hope. I also talked to him about, you know, the fact that Jews aren't, aren't by nature missional. He goes, no, we're not, really, we're not really into telling other people. and We just do our thing. Yeah, I have some strange conversations, but that's just the way we are. I was like, how sad. Where is the hope for the world? Do you know what? You're not going to find it in liberal Judaism. You're not going to find hope there. Because they don't have hope. They've put aside the references, or they just read over the references that talk about a Messiah. And they just read about the laws and the rules, and they interpret them slightly differently from the Orthodox Jew. I felt sad. I thought, my goodness me, what would I do if I didn't have hope? Even if my hope is as rubbish as hip-hop, at least they're trying to find hope. They're trying to find something. Imagine living without hope. For the Christian, one of the biggest dangers of this verse is found in the verse. Because the verse begins with these words, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. It's the biggest danger. It's a danger for the Christian. Because we can begin to believe the lies of the enemy that Christianity is no better than anything else, that it's quite archaic, that it's the way it's been sort of come about, it's, 
you know, today, oh, it's not great. Don't really like it, the church. I don't like the church. Love Jesus, don't like the church. We can get into that type of mentality. And when we get into that mentality, what happens is this. We become ashamed. And when we become ashamed, we do two things. We stop talking about Jesus. We just stop. We might philosophize about it, but we stop talking about Jesus. And the other thing we do is we stop believing him as well. We stop talking about him and we stop believing in him. I don't mean we stop coming to church, but we stop believing that he can, he can change you. He's the answer to suffering. He's the answer to your worthlessness. He's the answer to your, maybe your racist tendencies. He's the answer to those problems. You stop believing that. And you stop telling others. Because you just think to yourself, well, you know, is it really? There's so many different religions, so many different thoughts, so many different patterns, so many different approaches. Yeah, there's only one person in the whole of human history who claimed to be a saviour and did anything about it. Only one person. There's no other, there is no one like Jesus. No one else went to the cross for anything else other than their own mis- mis- misdemeanours. Other people may have brought to us philosophies and understandings, but no one else said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Look at me. Jesus didn't just talk about the things that he did, he talked about himself. I am the bread of life. He wasn't saying, oh, you know, I know where you can find some bread, it's over there, and if you go left down there, there's there's a baker's. He said, I am the bread of life. No one else did that. Let's not, as Christians, get to the stage where we no longer talk about him and we no longer believe him because that's a sign that we've become ashamed. And we don't want to be ashamed. Why? Because the world needs the hope. Even more than you do and I do, the world needs the hope. And God, in his infinite wisdom, has chosen the likes of you and me to bring that hope to the world. That's why we're here. You might think, is that why we're here? I thought we were here because we just joined up and it was a good little club and it was good food. And no, no, we're here to bring hope. We're here to be the answer in our community of those things. That's why we're here. And we're here to present this book, which brings hope more than anything else you'll ever read. There is no other book that you read like this book. You don't carry around Harry Potter with you and read bits of it again and again, and how does it help me today? Let me turn to chapter four of the Philosopher's Stone. It doesn't help you like that. It's an entertainment book. This is the only book that brings hope. This is the only book you will ever read that you go, oh my goodness, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppressed you. Wow, I didn't know it said that. It's the only book that brings hope. Jesus is the only person who brings hope. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And what that really means, it's for everyone. It's for everyone. Let's pray.
just want to give you a moment to reflect maybe on maybe something that's been said or something in the worship has grabbed your attention, caught you for a moment. I just want you to have a moment to reflect on that. In a moment, we're going to respond uh, with a song. I'll get Becca back up. But there are three groups of people. Just keep your eyes closed as we're going to pray. There are just three groups of people I just felt um, God uh, prompt me to mention this morning. The first group are, there just might be some here today, I don't know, but there just might be some here today who do not yet believe the gospel. You've not, you've not accepted Jesus as your saviour. You've not repented and asked him into your heart. You've not realised maybe that he is the hope for the world and he's the hope for your life. That the gospel answers the problem for the individual, for the community and for the world. And that he does that for you. And this morning it may be that you want to do something about that and you want to talk to somebody, you want to pray. I'm not going to ask you to particularly respond publicly, but if you want to do that, you just need to um, talk to somebody. How do I accept Jesus? How do I find him for myself? Secondly, the second group, so that's the first group, and there might not be many of us in that category, but there might be one or two of us in that category. And I I don't want you to walk away from here thinking that he's not your hope when he is. The second group is is those of us, we're already Christians. Do you know what? And we love Jesus. And, you know, in the past we were maybe even excited Christians and active and doing stuff. But we've become ashamed. And we've become ashamed in the sense that we don't really talk about him to people other than who already know him. And we've become ashamed because we don't really believe him. And that hasn't necessarily been an active thought. You've not, you've not actively said, I've stopped believing in him. But your actions have betrayed that. You're not trusting him because you're pretty resourceful. So you can sort things. He doesn't sort things for you, you sort things. And God wants to take that shame away. He wants you to talk about him and he wants you to believe him. And the third group, which may involve people from both those other groups and still others, is more a response because we recognise, do you know what, the world is a mess and it needs Jesus. And one of the things we can do is we can pray. And you know what? You can, you can pray for the world. You can pray for your friends. Do you know what? Even if you don't yet know him, but you're beginning to recognise maybe he's the answer, you can pray. You can pray for those that you work with. You can pray for those that you love. You can pray. 
And so I'm, I'm going to ask Becky to come up and just maybe think of a song. And I'm just going to pray. I'm going to pray. So let's keep our eyes closed. I'm just going to pray. <coughs> Father, we, uh, we want to thank you that, that we don't come to a God who is dead. We don't come to a dead religion. We don't come to just some philosophies. Uh, Father, we, we have to acknowledge as well that we don't come to something that's perfect in, in how we present it. We don't come to a perfect group. It's not like Christians are perfect and that's how you know they're Christians. And actually we're not perfect. And because we're not perfect, it means that the church isn't perfect by any means. But, but Lord, the church does carry the hope. It carries the only thing that can touch every single area, everything we can think about. The gospel touches it. There is nothing that is outside of its power, its influence, and its domain. And the simple answer for that, God, is because you created it all. You're God. And so this morning we come to you, and Lord, I pray if there are any in that first group, that first category of people who don't yet know you, they've not put their trust in Jesus, they haven't realised he's the answer, I pray, Father, that this morning that will change for them. I pray for repentance to occur, people to change their thinking and accept Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, I pray this morning. Lord, secondly, I pray for the believer, the Christian here who, who loves your name, but they've become ashamed in the sense that they no longer talk about you and in their heart of hearts they no longer believe you. And they know that because they do more work than they used to to make life work. I pray for those people. I pray that today you will take away the shame. You will fill them again with your spirit. You will remind them that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Everyone. And Father, I pray for all of us as we stand and sing and maybe then spend a moment just praying that we would pray not because we've been asked to but because we recognise you are the power of God that the gospel is the thing that people need to hear more than anything else we can serve them and help them and do good to them, we can give them money and stuff and stuff and stuff but in the end it's only as they come to recognise and understand who Jesus is and the impact that he can have on their lives does something change. And Father, we are praying for change. We're praying for change in our own lives, but oh God, are we praying for change in our community. We recognise that the gospel comes to us on many levels. Individually, it changes us. But God, your word talks about the gospel forming communities called the church and that those communities would love one another that they would serve the poor and that they would worship your name. And Father, we're trying to build that, but also, God, we're trying to reach a community that is broken, that is without hope, that's run away from you, and looked in other places and discovered that outside of the insulated walls of the hip-hop religion, there is no hope. There is no hope. And so I pray, Father, Father, that you would come to us you would move upon us. You would move our hearts. 
you would give us the compassion that you have. Father, that we would trust you as we were singing earlier, that we would trust in you alone. Lord, because when we trust you, we're not trying too hard to do things ourselves. Fill us, God, we pray. Let's stand together. I'm just going to sing and then we'll just spend a moment praying.